Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt trolley bringing you the best of my times radio show you can listen live monday to friday 10 till 1 on your dab radio on your smart speaker or download the times radio app coming up on today's episode really fascinating chat with john knott he was margaret thatcher's defense secretary during the falklands he tried to resign and she wouldn't let him uh, he also stormed out of a famous tv interview uh, with robin day after he said that uh, he was a here today gone tomorrow politician that's uh, a good chat with him coming up in just a moment but first as we always do on a Friday. Let's take a look at what we learned this week. First of all, we learned that it's all okay. Firstly, are you okay? I'm here to tell you that I am totally 100% on it and it is going to be okay. Okay. Uh, We learned that just seven Tory MPs think job didn't lie because this is a job free zone. We learned from a question from Jess Phillips that Tory MP Leah Nietzsche is very trusting of you-know-who. Do you think there's any chance that Boris Johnson could also have lied to her? Well, I, I, I thank the Honourable Lady, actually. Uh, no, I don't believe he did. Although she then didn't vote for the, against the report. Anyway, uh, we learned why Ian Duncan-Smith sacked Gary Streeter. When Ian rang round the shadow cabinet at the time to say, will you support me, I made the probably the rookie error, Matt of saying to him, no, Ian, I won't support you because I believe you're unelectable. We learn that Ed Davies' big clock... is clogging up a Lib Dem spin doctor's front room. We learn that Joe Biden missed the news in September. All right. God save the Queen, man. We learned that the last time that Keir Starmer was in a helicopter... I think um, when I was doing a case somewhere out in the Caribbean, oh, okay. I'd say 15 In the years Caribbean? Ago. Well, I was, Caribbean doing, I, was wow. doing a, I was doing a legal case <laughs> out there. Um, it's actually a police helicopter going across a section of wow, uh, Trinidad. Ooh, and we learned that Tory MP Desmond Swain is totally fine. Pupils have been denounced as despicable for failing to accept the reality of a fellow pupil who identified as a cat. Uh, Can we have a debate on Confucius? For it was he who observed that the most difficult thing 
is to search a dark room for a black cat, particularly when there is no cat. And that is what we learned this week. Now let's take a look at the rest of the news with The Columnists. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor of my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. That feels like it's been ages since you both been back together. Uh, India Knight's here. Hi, India. Morning. Uh, we were here last week, weren't we? We both here last week? No, James wasn't yeah. here last no, week. No, I had a last minute disappearance. Oh, no, yes, that's right. right. I had to yes. go to Sweden. You what? I had to go to Sweden. What, last minute? Yep. Why was that? Can you tell us why? Um, I had to go to a conference in Sweden. Conference in yeah. Sweden? What, you suddenly remembered at 10 um, o'clock on Thursday night? I had remembered Sweden. I had forgotten you, I'm oh. afraid to say. Unbelievable. So what, what was the conference about? Uh, it was on uh, leadership and statecraft. Was it? I was handing out some of my wisdom on those subjects. Were you? Yeah. Statecraft especially. I statecraft, myself I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Last minute booking at a conference in Sweden. Uh, anyway, James Barrett is here, which is... Although it has been pointed out that in this t- in my uh, olive-coloured T-shirt, people have been saying I look a little bit like President Zelensky today, which may well, be... in, in T-shirt terms, yes. <laughs> the rest of me, perhaps not. L- but, less so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe, would it help if we shaved your head? Uh, I'd rather you didn't do we that. We could do that. Please, could we get some scissors please in the do. office? That would, I would work on the socials. We shaved James's I, I head. I don't want to go viral for being shaved live on Times Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just snort? <laughs> anyway, let's come on. Let's 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 knuckle down and discuss statecraft. Um, uh, in particular, what Rishi Sunak is doing, trying to reassure people about the interest rates rise and uh, how he's getting a grip on inflation. He's reassuring us all it's all going to be okay. Today, you may have seen what the Bank of England has announced with interest rates, and I'm sure that actually fills many of you with some anxiety. Right, and some concern about what's going on and what does that mean for you and your families. Now, I'm here to tell you that I am totally 100% on it and it is going to be OK and we are going to get through this. He's totally 100% on it, India. Mm. The problem with Rishi Sunak in this context is that, is that everybody is aware of his vast personal wealth and so it is very difficult for him it's very, you know, for a fact that he's never been a person who's completely horrified by the sudden giant leap in their mortgage repayment. And so he can't, you know, empathy comes across as sort of slightly patronizing. I think he's a decent person and decency comes through and he expects everybody else, mortgage companies, lenders, supermarkets to behave decently. And uh, it doesn't really feel like quite enough. And it also feels slightly like wishful thinking. So, um, yeah. Very, very. It's it. it he doesn't see. He, he, despite saying that he's a hundred percent on it, the impression that the viewer or listener mm. gets is that he's kind of hoping for the best. I mean, I'm sure he's got a strategy. Strategy's taking rather a long time to play out. Yeah. But but his empathy is not is not convincing. Well, I I I wonder actually whether that's less to do because he could be uh, rich but um, able to connect. Um, with an audience, I wonder if it's just mm. his his sort of manner and personality. But actually, it's quite. It's just been particularly put to the test right now because uh, of the of the of the political circumstances. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think a crisis is always revealing of the strength of a person's political presentation. We always used to say about Boris Johnson that he was great at this boosterism, but in a crisis, he was a slightly kind of unconvincing, mm. slightly flailing figure. And it's interesting that Rishi Sunak, who you know was put into that job to I think, project an atmosphere of, you know, uh, technocratic competence, 
don't worry, don't worry, everybody. That sort of sense of crisis does sort of. I, I agree with India. He doesn't quite seem to match the gravity of the situation. Yeah. There's no sort of gravitas about him, and obviously, you know, interest rates rising is going to be very difficult for the Conservative Party at the next election. I think India's point about the personal presentation and whether it matches the moment will be interesting to see too. Does this feel like the man who has a full sense of the seriousness of this crisis as you know we head towards the next election? It's interesting that, and I wonder whether because he was so popular, Rishi Sunak, during the pandemic and then coming out of it, partly because he was giving people lots of money, which he's not doing this time. But also, I wonder whether his part of his popularity and his appeal was based on being the ying to the Boris Johnson yang. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go on, India. Oh, I was yes. He was an he was a kind of an absolute vivid contrast to Boris Johnson, and you sort of got the sense that oh, it's all right. You know, the grown up is here, and he's talking in this calm way. He's saying quite compassionate things. It's going to be all right. Now, X years later, yesterday, addressing that crowd of people, you just think mm, you're 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 perhaps over slick, and perhaps this comes across as slightly patronising. You know, you can't say I feel your pain to people whose pain you have literally never felt. It's it's just not convincing. He's got to find another way. I don't know that there is another way for him to find actually, because he's so glossy and he's so kind of he's plausible, but. I don't know. I don't know that anybody is believing the message anymore. Yeah, and I think that's the, that. Once you get into that, I mean, I don't know. It was interesting. I talked to some people last night whether this was the week where things looked particularly grim for the. You know, but six months into the, the Rishi the Rishi Sunak plan and his pledges and all of that, none of them are really heading in the right direction, and the polls are seem to be widening again. The Labour leaders leads expanding. We had a poll on the show yesterday that showed that collapse in the Tory lead even in the countryside um, and you do just wonder what it is that could possibly turn up yeah it's the it's the kind of narrative thing as well isn't it because I think he benefited as you were saying from the con from the contrast and presentation that he had between Boris Johnson and Liz Truss who presented as chaotic people who didn't have a handle on the controls he presented as if he did but now you know we're yeah. kind of you know getting on for a year into the reality of this this government and that doesn't seem to be matching yeah, yeah, yeah. what we might have hoped at well, the beginning. If you, if you can turn it around. Um, well, let's uh, let's move on in Mark. Seven years of Brexit. It's all going very well, James. Um, you, in your column this week, though, wrote about centrist rage. Because normally the rage comes from the extremes. But you took aim at the centrists who've lost the plot. Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, I am myself something of a centrist. I'm no fan of Brexit or of Boris Johnson. But... I detect among my fellow centrists an unbecoming anger. <laughs> I think th various figures I pointed to were people like uh, Jolyon Morm, the yep. uh, sort of demented Twitter barrister. <laughs> always, um, all, and Fox all, always, always, yeah, and Fox, and Killer, Fox famous Fox murderer, always, always really furious. <laughs> um, people like James O'Brien, who has an LBC show. That's what we should just let's let explain the Fox thing. He once tweeted, yes. I think, didn't he? Yes, that he'd murdered a fox with a baseball bat, wearing a silk kimono. Wearing a silk kimono. He was not the fox. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's the way around it is. Yeah, that would suggest it a certain amount of losing of the plot. Yes, I mean, that is almost your archetypal image of an angry centrist. <laughs> a man in a silk kimono murdering a fox with a baseball bat. <laughs> and the point of my column was not that I necessarily disagree with these people, but that I worry that our political discourse is so filled with rage and cynicism already, and the people you expect to, you know, hopefully balance the debate, hear both sides of the story, other people in the middle, the centrists... And I kind of worry if those people will go mad, then our whole political landscape just looks a bit sort of 
depressing and tumultuous. As someone else I spoke about in the column was Alistair Campbell, who last year was speculating that because Boris Johnson was sniffing in a meeting, did that mean he was on drugs? And, you know, I don't like Boris Johnson, but I just think yeah, we yeah, can't yeah. get into this angry conspiracist it, mindset. That, it sort of freaks me out a little bit that we might be going there right across the political spectrum. It's interesting that the Alistair Campbell Boys do a thing. Their, their podcast is phenomenally successful and it's all centric. It's basically, it's centrist wage. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 again, I listen to it. You know, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I'm not trying to condemn everyone out of hand. I just... Oh, I can't listen. <laughs> I mean, they're no, they're no match Chorley's. I know, exactly. Um, and you've also worked about that someone called James O'Brien, but I've not heard of him. What does he do? So James O'Brien <laughs> is now, uh, I think, uh, possibly trying to hunt me down. Uh, is he? He's a very angry tweet about me yesterday. Did he? Yes. Oh, well, let me have uh, a look at that. What do you think? Very, uh, very cross with me. What do you think, India? The um, uh, It feels like James is on... The risk of centrist uh, consensus breaking out. It feels like James is on something. Yeah, he's definitely onto something. I do think, though, that centrist rage of the country describes is fueled by social media. And if you are not a consumer of social media or on social media yourself, your centrist crossness remains a kind of mild general sense of irritation rather than a kind of foaming at the mouth, accusing people of taking cocaine or murdering foxes kind of rage. And I think that's better. Yes, and I, I think... I mean, my, my my other kind of worry is that there are some people who have really caught on to all this, in many ways, justified anger as a quite a good career tool. And there's you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, there's a lot of kind of good career mileage to be had out of whipping people up into a rage. A lot of people are angry and are willing to be sort of whipped up into anger. And you know, mm. as justified as that anger is, I just think it's a bit dangerous for our sort of political discourse that everybody is constantly furious. Including James. Yeah, yeah, you can't have you can't have everybody foaming at the mouth all over the place. It's mad, and it's a really true point about people having identified the whipping up of rage as a good career move. You know, you would think that the nice centrists would um, would, would 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 not fall for that, but obviously they do. People, I, I'm constantly amazed at how many people exist in a permanent state of fury. But it is <laughs> I do I do think it's to do I do think it's to do with social media. You're going about your day, you check yeah, something, yeah, there's yeah. something that makes you furious. There's somebody really good and really slick at taking your fury and just kind of making sure that it doesn't abate for the rest of the day and so on and so on, rinse and repeat. It's, but that's um, that's so I mean that without dwelling on the rest is politics. That's basically you know, their whole shtick is oh we disagree because yeah. I used to be a Tory MP and he used to be a Labour spin doctor. But they disagree on everything. They just agree that, that Boris Johnson's a liar and that Brexit's been terrible and everyone can just wind themselves up about Brexit all over again. Yeah, I so, think the Brexit thing is really crucial and the bre- 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 yeah. Brexit is where it comes from. And again, it's difficult because, you know, a lot of people shouting at me yesterday saying, we're right to be angry, this has been terrible for the country. And I absolutely don't disagree with that. It's just, I guess, yeah. some of the manifestations of the anger that I do yeah. worry about. Somebody's just texting and saying, hey, I love James O'Brien, he's ace. You're not listening to him, though, are you? Which is, they're, which is they're all listening to Matt Hawley. They're all listening to I just think they've right, voted okay. with their ears, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to get your ears caught in a ballot box, would you? In a ballot box? What if you're going to vote with your ears? Oh, no, you absolutely wouldn't want to do that. You fold your Although, ears up and put there them are worse things, I suppose. To get caught in a ballot box. To get caught in a ballot box. <laughs> <laughs> but let's not go there. Um, oh, James, why do you want to talk about Waterstone's dads, I wonder? Well, because uh, I was insulted in the in the national press this week but in a highly flattering way <laughs> so i'm humble bragging about uh, being called in the new statesman i was called a cognoscenti princeling 
Yes. So, and this was supposed to be, I think, a sort of rude thing to say about me, but I've been dining out on this. It's the intense irritation of my girlfriend now because I've been trying to refer to myself in these terms regularly. So the Waterstones, so this is like a new, like a new, like, like Mondeo Man or Stephen Millennial, Woman, Millennial, Millennial Millie we spoke Millennial about. Millennial Millie we've talked about before. Uh, this is a piece by uh, Gavin Jacobson talking about the Waterstones dad, which is sort of upper middle class floating voter. Uh, and it says he was born between 1956 and 78. If not already retired, he earns around £90,000 or more working in media, advertising the arts, or in the upper layers of public sector bureaucracy. Voted Blair in 97, Cameron in 2010 and 2015, the Lib Dems in 2017. His daughters wanted him to vote for Jeremy Corbyn in 2019, but he won't reveal who he voted for in that one. Uh, it goes, oh, he preferred Boris Johnson as mayor of London rather than prime minister, just as he preferred Top Gear to the Grand Tour. It was very good pieces. And then, oh, where can I find the, the uh, I need to get to the, the, the Marriott bit. This is the most important bit of the piece, the crucial, the crucial link in what's uh, Oh, that's right. Uh, he still gets a lot of his news from Newsnight. Uh, reads the Times, though Mrs. Phil, Mrs. Phil Collins, and his gutted David uh, Rodovich, his favourite columnist, uh, has been defenestrated. Well, anyway, it says, but the presence of cog- <laughs> cognoscenti princeling James Marriott reassures him that he'll still get his fix of arch cleverness, Victoriana book and podcast recommendations from the paper of record. Isn't that what we do every week on this show? I mean, it is basically what it is. <laughs> Did you well, know- why, does the, why does the Victoriana come from, James? Are you constantly banging on about... Victorian things? I think it, they're implying that I'm a kind of weird, uh, prematurely aged young, yeah, young kind of character. You've done a, so couple, you've done a couple of columns on that. Yeah, I have. I mean, vein. yes, that, they are, you know, that's not there totally was definitely illegitimate one, criticism There was me. one about people in New York, young young people pretending to like old things in America. Oh, God, yeah, yes. Oh, yes. yes. And I, I, am, I mean, I'm probably a slightly odd young person who likes old things, so fair enough, you know. They got me there. <laughs> but they called me a cognoscenti princeling, which I'm deeply smug about. Well, luckily you've got a T-shirt printed. I don't think it's unflattering. I don't think it's. I don't think it's snide. Actually, I think, I think it's quite flattering, isn't it? <laughs> you don't think it's not? No, I'm, 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 I'm very flattered. Take... I'm a little sceptical of the existence of Waterstones' dad. I wonder how many people there are who work in the media and who earn over ninety thousand pounds a year and who read James Marriott columns and do all these other things the piece says they do. And I wonder how politically significant they are if many of them, if any of them, even exist, which I suspect is very few. But he said he's despondent, politically confused, curious yet overwhelmed by choice, drained by hopes, raised and dashed, but lush the mass of a career. Yes, okay. well, that that is often what turns out with these sort of political um, creations. Is that the more you describe them, the more different people you describe, and the fewer actual existing people, people that really. Are left. You kind of put your finger on. James Marriott and Indian Night there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with John Knott. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. All politicians like to think they will go on forever. They don't like to be told they are here today, gone tomorrow. When my guest was reminded of this fact, he walked out of a BBC interview and into the political TV history books. Sir John Knott was the last National Liberal MP, served in the Heath and Thatcher governments and was Defence Secretary during the Falklands War. And I'm delighted to say he's here today and hopefully won't be gone before the end of the interview. John Knott, welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Th thanks for coming in. Uh, let's start at the beginning, if you like. Mm -hmm. You were the last National Liberal MP. Mm -hmm. Take us back to, what was it, 1966 you were, you were first elected. Why National Liberal and not a Conservative, and then why a Conservative later? Well, the National Liberal meant nothing, really. But uh, when I put my name forward as a candidate, uh, the local association said that no Conservative will ever win the St Ives seat. The traditions in Cornwall are entirely Liberal. And uh, your predecessor was a national liberal, and we suggest that you take that label. It, it didn't mean anything to me or anybody else, really, and I gave it up at the next election. I was the, the, the last national liberal MP in the House of Commons. We inherited a beautiful room, national liberals overlooking the Thames, which was taken away from me by the <laughs> Tory whips. <laughs> We had about 80,000 in the, in the bank. We gave that to the Conservative Party, who wasted it and spent it all in one day, I think, on some foolish publicity campaign. And you arrived in 1966 as a National Liberal, sitting with the Conservatives, but very much in opposition, Labour under Wilson winning a landslide. What was it like? What was it, give us a sense of what the House of Commons was like in 1966. Well, it bore no resemblance to today's House of Commons. On the Tory side, it was mainly people who'd served during the war. There were a few Tory landowners, a lot of people who'd retired after the Second World War. They say it's now become a party of second-hand car dealers, and I don't think there were any second-hand car dealers uh, in my time. But um, it was uh, very friendly, and there was a good relationship with the Labour Party, which in government. The, the, the old traditional Labour lot were very good news. And Harold Wilson I knew quite well, although he was the Prime Minister and I was a brand-new 
conservative backbencher. Uh, I was, of course, the MP for the Isles of Scilly. Of course, his favourite ha- ha- place in the world. Harold used to go to the Isles of Scilly uh, for his holidays. For the And I saw a lot of him. And he, he uh, I much preferred Harold Wilson to Ted Heath. <laughs> and I saw him frequently in, in the Isles of Scilly. What, what was it about the Isles of Scilly that he, he loved so much? Well, he had a bungalow there. Yeah. And it is a rather wonderful place, the Isles of Scilly. And uh, it was certainly an interesting place for me as the MP because unlike anywhere else in the country, when I arrived, I was met as if I was a member of the royal family by a delegation (laughs) at the airport and I was given an official lunch. So I was a very important person as MP for the Isles of Scilly. I certainly wasn't an important person anywhere else. Uh, So explain then how it felt being in opposition and how then Ted Heath uh, wins from opposition. You know, so few people have done it, actually, in in history, gone from opposition into government uh, in the last sort of half century or so. You you said you preferred, presumably you didn't say this publicly, that you preferred Howard Wilson to Ted Heath. What was Ted Ted Heath like as a leader? Well, poor Ted, um, he was in fact a very interesting man, very determined, passionately believed in putting the country right, uh, but uh, circumstances prevented it. And my misfortune was that when, when, we, when uh, Ted Heath won the election, I became the economic secretary to the Treasury, which meant that I had to go to the House of Commons every day and defend Heath's policies, which I didn't believe in. Uh, where Ted went wrong was that he had this fear, which came from Macmillan, really, of unemployment. And when the unemployment in the country looked as if it was rising to one million, I mean, God, it's never been one million, rising to one million, he called in the Treasury and and said, we've got to do something to stop the unemployment rising to one million and we must boost the economy. It's rather, in fact, what Liz Truss tried to do. And it all led to a disaster. The the barber boom. The barber boom. It wasn't the barber boom. Tony Barber was a very good man, but he was loyal to the Prime Minister. And uh, there we are. It it was a very unfortunate period. But uh, I should say that I I twice was in opposition, and I enjoyed it very much. It was the opportunity I had to look after the constituency. I was a sort of, like most good MPs, I was a sort of welfare officer, and I spent my whole time looking after people's problems. And I remember the occasion when uh, my agent came in, knocked on the door and said, excuse me, John, the Prime Minister's on the telephone. And I said, this is Ted Heath on the telephone. And I said, oh, yes, well, I wonder what he wants. So I I got rid of Mrs Curnow, who was complaining about her drains or something. And Ted Heath said, oh, John, um, I've decided that I want you to join my government. So, well, that'd be great, I said. I didn't know what job it was. In fact... Uh, economic secretary treasury is about the only junior ministerial job worth having because <laughs> you're in the you're in the heart you're of things right in the yeah. middle of things and so i it, it was a fantastic job offer ted said well but the trouble is john you don't agree with any of our policies so i said well prime minister i, I don't think that's true of course i agree i agree with, i agree with them uh, which i didn't <laughs> And I suppose actually looking back at that sort of period in the early 70s, you had energy shortages, energy prices going up, inflation, uh, you know, concern about the economy, an attempt to try and bolster it, which all backfires. The parallels to what's happening today, you know, is a reminder that there's nothing new in politics. The same uh, thing comes out. All, all very similar. Ted was determined to grow the economy, but of course he ran into all sorts of obstacles. Mm. The real problem was internationally, the Americans came off the gold, they, and that caused massive international mm. inflation, coupled with the fact that the unions were out of control, yeah. and, and there was massive inflation in the UK. So 
the fact is that um, the, the, the disaster of Ted's government, which was sad because he, he was actually quite a good man. I didn't get on with him, but then no junior minister did because he didn't speak to any of us. He, he regarded his junior ministers with some contempt, probably right. And so he calls the election, and, you know, talking about the, the union sort of dominating uh, everything that was happening in the UK. Mm. He calls the election asking the question, who governs Britain? Mm. And the, the country said, well, not you. And so you head into opposition again. In more recent times, what we've seen is one government goes into, one party goes into to government and they're there for a long period. But actually, the 70s is a lot of chopping and changing. Mm-hmm. How did Margaret Thatcher turn it around so quickly after such a t- tumultuous time of Ted Heath being in charge? Mm-hmm. She challenges him to the leadership because he won't go. She mm-hmm. takes over. What was it that Margaret Thatcher had that meant that she came back in 79 and not just for a short term before being turfed out again, but really sort of permanently changed politics in the country? She won in 79 because of the chaos... Uh, the, the Tories left at the end of the Heath government, which made governing impossible for Callaghan. Callaghan was the, prime, the Labour Prime Minister, and he inherited such a mess, uh, which was really at the fault of the, of the Ted Heath government, and he, there was no way he could turn it around. In the first two or three years of Thatcher's government, I, I, was, um, I was Trade Secretary, I think. I, was in, I, I had a, a, a rather an important part to play in the... because in the, I was as it were, the second economic department after the Treasury. It was, it was a very bad two years. I mean, inflation was going up. And eventually, uh, just before the Falklands, uh, uh, the, the economy began to turn. And I think that if, it, if there had not been the Falklands, I think the Tories would have won the election. Of course, the belief is that it was the Falklands that won the election for Thatcher. Uh, I think she would have won the election in '83. Yeah even if we had not had the Falklands, which made it pretty certain she was going to win. So you, you find yourself in government, you oversaw the privatisation of British Airways. It, you know, it, set, it became one of the defining features of, the, of sort of Thatcher's time in government. But now we're seeing the implications of whether it's the water companies or the rail industry and a rowing back of all of that. Do you think ultimately privatisation was the right thing to do? Or are we now seeing what happens if private companies are ultimately you know, putting profit before fixing leaking pipes or making sure the trains are running? Well, it's an interesting thing. I think privatisation was the key to the success of the Thatcher government and, and also the, the, the sale of council houses was, was a major plus politically for Thatcher. And I think the privatisation raised good sums of money. Now, I think it was a great success, but you're quite right. Uh, nowadays, people say, well, what are all these people piling up their bonuses for? Are the water companies paying themselves large bonuses, um, you know, why, why isn't the money going to better drains? But no, I think privatisation was a success, really. And I don't think the Labour government, if we have one, it'd be impossible to renationalise all these businesses. The problem was, uh, and I was right in the middle of it, was that the steel and the coal industries, which were the fundamental fundamentals of the economy, were declining. They were completely uneconomic. And in the end, we had to get rid of the shipbuilding and steel and steel companies. And it was a terrible time. I mean, I, I was, I was um, responsible for the textile industry. When I became trade secretary, the textile industry employed one and a half million, million people. Uh, by the time I left, it was employing half that. And the reason was the imp- imports of cheap textiles and everything else. Uh, we, we, we just weren't competitive. Mr Speaker, sir, the House meets this Saturday 
to respond to a situation of great gravity. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. After several days of rising tension in our relations with Argentina, that country's armed forces attacked the Falkland Islands yesterday and established military control of the islands. Did you know at that point sort of where the Falklands were in the world and why they were important and whether or not this has become such a defining uh, moment? To be honest, I hardly knew where they were. I knew they were somewhere in the South Atlantic. I had a, a, a globe in my office in the Ministry of Defence and I went over to the globe to <laughs> find out precisely where they were. Uh, we had a small contingent of Royal Marines there, but no, no, they, they, uh, the, Falcon, uh, the Falcons didn't figure. And, and we were in the middle of the Cold War. I mean, I, I seriously believed that we were in real danger from the Soviets. We were ahead of them because of technology. Our technology was much better than theirs, but uh, the Cold War was, was what all we were always thinking about. All we were only thinking about. And I, when I was Defence Secretary, I brought in the Trident uh, system, which I think it was nuclear weapons that saved us from the Soviets. I think if we hadn't had nuclear weapons, I really do believe that we could never have resisted the Soviets and they would have got to the channel within two or three weeks. And so when Argentina invades the Falklands, you offer your resignation to Margaret Thatcher because it happened on your watch. As Defence Secretary, Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary, offers his resignation. Uh, she accepted his and not yours. Why was that? Well, it was the other way round, actually. Um, there was a bad debate in which I was severely criticised for making a very bad speech. I knew when I wound up the debate on the Falklands that I, I was the full guy who was going to be slaughtered by both both parties. So, uh, And then Carrington and I went upstairs to see the, the Tory backbenchers and they gave Carrington a terrible time. I'd be, had a bad time in the House of Commons, but they gave Carrington a terrible time. And I went with Peter back to see Margaret Thatcher afterwards. And she said, how did it go, Peter? And he said, it was terrible. I got to resign. And then the weekend intervened and I, I was busy trying to see what we were going to do to resist the Argentinians. And on Monday morning, I was in my office when a junior, one of my ministers rang me up and said, did you know that Peter Carrington's resigning at lunchtime. And I said, no one's told me. And there I'd been with Carring uh, Carrington on every single programme. And I, th I, th I thought, this is impossible if he resigns. I'm the Defence Secretary and British territory's been invaded. How can I not resign? So I rang up number 10 and I said, uh, Prime Minister, I, 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 my letter of resignation is coming over to you now. And she said, you can't do that. I need you. You can't possibly do that. So I said, I'm sorry, I'm resigning. And then about... Half an hour later, I thought to myself, well, if she was prepared to publish my resignation letter at the same time as she publishes Carrington's resignation, and then she's prepared to refuse my resignation, then I think my honour is satisfied, which is what happened. And I, uh, I, there was a Pete in her memoirs, which, um, which I'm rather pleased about, and, and she said... And by the time of our first meeting of the War Cabinet, Peter Carrington had resigned on his own insistence in spite of Herculean efforts to stop him doing so. John Knott had offered his resignation, which I could not possibly accept when the task force was on the ocean. Thank goodness I didn't accept. John was splendid throughout the campaign. Now, I'm pleased about that because <laughs> I was at one time a soldier and the, the idea that my commanding officer, in this case Margaret Thatcher, was pleased with my performance uh, was, was very pleasing to me. And your performance was not just in the Cabinet and in the Ministry of Defence. You became the sort of the face of the 
the Falklands campaign as well. The Defence Secretary, Mr John Knott, is about to make a statement. Good evening. Since my statement last night, our forces have been consolidating their successful attack on the high ground to the west of Port Stanley. Our successes on the ground over the weekend mark another significant step to securing the complete and final withdrawal of Argentine forces from the Falkland Islands. Well, not really. I tried not to be because <laughs> my principal job as Defence Secretary was to keep all the House of Commons out of it and as to, to keep anybody from interfering with the, with the yeah. people who are running the war. I mean, the big thing was when you, when you have something like this, everybody knows better, of course, than the government. We all know better than governments anyhow, whatever it is. But they, all retired admirals are on the telephone saying that they knew what, what to do and the House of Commons didn't like Margaret Thatcher a bit. They, a large chunk of the Tory party wanted to see Margaret Thatcher go. The thing was to keep the House of Commons and to keep outsiders out of them and allow the military to get on with it themselves. Now, you see now a perfect example of what goes wrong if politicians take charge of the military. Putin. Putin has made a real hash... Of, of, of Ukraine because he interferes and he doesn't leave it to the generals. And, of course, everything he does um, interferes with the generals and there's a shambles. So my job as Defence Secretary was to keep outsiders out and let the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen get on with it. If a similar thing happened today... Do you think Britain's in a position to defend the Falklands in the way that it oh, did? Oh, yes, much more easily. Well, we've got very good aircraft down yeah. there. Yes, we could defend the Falklands again. Yeah. Yes, of course we could. I suppose we should then. So, so you know, Britain uh, successfully defends uh, the Falklands. We need to talk about your famous Robin Day interview in the middle of the Conservative Party uh, conference in 1982. You just, I think you just made your big speech, didn't you? It was a, your big sort of valedictory moment, having said you were going to... Yeah. Step down. So the last time def- uh, addressing the party conference as defence secretary, and you you went on and and Sir Robin Day, I think it's fair to say, needled you quite a bit. But why should the public on this issue, as regards the future of the Royal Navy, believe you, a transient uh, here today, and if I may say so, gone tomorrow, politician, rather than a senior officer of many years? I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm fed up with this interview. Really, it's ridiculous, Royal Navy. Well, thank you, Mr. Not. Any regrets about that? No, no. In fact. Uh, uh, the the debater on the Falklands, the, the Tory party was was absolutely overwhelmed with pleasure at, at, at our success at the Falklands, and for the first time in my life, I made a speech and and I was I was a hero. <laughs> I'd never been a hero politically ever before, but I was. And so I came off the platform with Margaret Thatcher beaming that it had gone so well, and I'd forgotten all about my defence review. I mean, it it had happened six months before, and it was over and finished. And all Robin wanted to talk about. Was 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 the defence review, which was which, as far as I was concerned, was history. And, and actually, he he lost he lost the interview. I mean, I answered all his questions, and he went on and on and on, going back to my defence review. And I just thought, well, this is ridiculous. You know, it's got nothing to do with what the what the conference was about. He was a friend of mine, Robin. I knew him quite well. He he, he got he got very he was very pleased with himself. But would you advise to? Uh... Other politicians to get up and walk out of interviews. Yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, the way, the way they, they they take it all on the chin is ridiculous. And so, when you look at politicians today, you said they get a lot of grief. People like to say, "Oh, it's not like it used to be. It's not like the big beasts we used to have." Has there been a deterioration in politics, or or is it just that people have sort of rose tinted spectacles? No, I think politicians and politics are much as they've always been. 
I don't go along to this, that my period was a great sort of golden era when there were much more distinguished backbenchers and they didn't cause trouble. I I don't go for that. Uh, As I say, I went through the terrible Heath period when I was a Treasury Minister, and uh, I think the country behaved just as badly then as it's behaving now. Uh, What is probably worse now uh, is is the media. Uh, The media, as far as I'm concerned, is out of control. And it, it's just this 24-hour business, having to publish something new every, every second of the day. It's, it's this 24-hour yeah. thing that they have to find something new and provocative to say every day. And it's a nightmare. Looking at people say the next election, will it be like 1997? Will it be like 1992 when the Conservatives pulled off a surprise victory? Is it uh, like 74 where we might end up with two elections because the opposition don't get a majority? What's your sense of where we are in the political cycle? It looks to me as if it's Labour's turn. I mean, the Tories have been in an awfully long time. I think the disadvantage the Labour Party's got is that um, Keir Starmer is, is extremely unimpressive. I mean, he's so obviously a lawyer. I have nothing but praise for Sunak. I think he's trying to turn a hopeless situation around with inflation and everything else. So I have nothing but admiration for Sunak. And I think in the next six months before the election, he may have quite some success. Whether the Tories could ever um, prevent a, a, a Labour majority, I rather doubt. But there's a chance they will. And what about Boris Johnson? Is there a risk he turns into sort of the great sulk-like well, Ted I, Heath? I, 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 I was a great lever. I, mm. I, I was always against the um, being a member. My, my position on Europe was that I constitutionally I wanted to get out. Mm. Nothing to do with economics for me. Do I think the leaving Europe was a good thing? I think it was excellent because we... We're independent. Uh, the economics are a little bit difficult. Uh, there was going to be a transition period. Boris Johnson, well, I, 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 I think he did a wonderful job getting us out of Europe. I think he's done a good job on Ukraine, but he should never be prime minister. He was unsuited to be prime minister. He's not a details man, and uh, he did it. He, he made, made a mess of being prime minister, frankly. Final question. A few weeks ago, Henry Zeffman, his report on the Times, came on the show and he, he mentioned a top piece of trivia that your son Julian wrote the score to Wallace and Gromit. Yes. And, and you were telling him, and much else besides. He's very talented. Well, he's written the, the thing for Peppa Pig, which is the most successful <laughs> thing that's been, and it's gone all around the world. And my son, fortunately, has made a great fortune <laughs> out of his music for Peppa Pig. Are you a Peppa Pig fan? Yeah. Well, I don't really like Julian's music. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think the music of I think the music of um, Wallace and Gromit was great, but Peppa Pig is, is not the same. But um, anyhow, it's it's never been a, a thing like it. it's gone all over the world. There's not a four or five year old anywhere in America, Russia, China, and all the Chinese children all watching all watching Peppa Pig. Absolutely. So good, Julie. Well done, Julie. <laughs> And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to catch me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Do get in touch with your thoughts. Matt at times.radio is the email address. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Hold up. 